The writer's demands are not unreasonable. I'm a member of the Guild. I support collective bargaining. This nation owes so much to unions. They're the reason. <laughs> unions. This is true. Unions are the reason we have weekends. True. And by extension, why we have TGI Fridays. So the next time you enjoy a whiskey glazed blaze burger, you thank a union. Thank you, unions. No, I could do without the TGI Fridays. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the bradcast as you doing i'm just realizing we may have more listeners these days with the late night shows shutting down <laughs> well you know, i'm just that, uh, realizing uh, now that's I, true. I feel that's the possible. extra added weight of responsibility to <laughs> inform the american people anyway thank you very much for joining us today uh yes deadlines deadlines in the news today First, the deadline of midnight last night when the contract for the Writers Guild of America came to an end, leading to the first strike by the Guild in some 15 years. Some 11,500 film and TV writers represented by the Writers Guild of America put down their pens and their laptops their pens Uh, (laughs) after failing to reach a new contract with the trade association representing Hollywood studios and production companies. The labor dispute is believed likely to have a cascading effect on TV and production film production, depending on how long the strike continues. And it comes as streaming services are now under growing pressure from Wall Street to show profits Well, if we pay the writers less, then I guess we can show more profits. Funny how that works, isn't it? Late night TV was the first to feel the fallout, just as it was during the 2007 writer's strike that lasted for 100 days. I remember it well. We'll talk about that in a minute. But all of the top late night shows 
which are staffed by writers that write monologues and jokes for the hosts, well, they all immediately went dark. NBC's The Tonight Show, Comedy Central's The Daily Show, ABC's Jimmy Kimmel Live, CBS's The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and NBC's Late Night all made plans to use reruns throughout the week. One late-night show, however, will not go dark. And uh, the one that it is may not surprise you. You got any guesses, Desi Doyen? I shouldn't guess. I don't want to give it away. Uh, well, it's Fox News' <laughs> yeah. Gutfield with Greg Gut- Gutfeld, I guess is how you say his name. They will continue airing new episodes throughout the strike, apparently, according to Fox on Tuesday, because, you know, the hell with workers. Wait, wasn't Fox News the station that cares about the working man? Guess not. Anyway, the loss of uh, those late-night shows, except for Gutfeld's, is, in fact, going to make a dent, I think, in news actual news consumption for Americans, given the number who actually get their news, and frankly, more reliably so than they do from Fox, folks who get their news on the late night comedy shows. Streaming and its ripple effects are at the center of the dispute. The Guild says that even as series budgets have increased, writers' share of that money has consistently shrunk. Streaming services use smaller staffs now for shorter stints, and that has uh, made sustained income apparently harder to come by, according to the Guild. And the number of writers working at Guild minimums has gone from about a third to about a half in the past decade. So more writers getting paid less. Writers of comedy variety shows for streaming have no minimum protections at all, according to the Guild. On TV staffs, more writers are working at minimum regardless of experience, often for fewer weeks, the Guild said in a report in March. The lack of regular seasonal calendar of a regular seasonal calendar in streaming has further depressed pay, according to the Guild, and scheduled annual bumps under the current contract have fallen well short of increases in inflation. Months of negotiations, primarily over writers' pay for those streaming shows, have still left considerable distance, reportedly, between the writers and the AMPTP, that's the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, that produce Hollywood's, uh, the, the, which represent Hollywood's studios and the streamers and the production companies. The AMPTP said Monday that uh, Monday night that it had offered, quote, generous increases in compensation for writers as well as improvements in streaming residuals. They said they would improve their offer, but they couldn't because of the multitude of demands by the writers. What those multitude of demands are is not specifically clear at this time. Late-night talk shows, heavily dependent on same-day, current events-based comedy writing, will be the first to feel a strike's effect. The status of daytime talk shows, which lean more into host chats and interviews, that's less certain. For example, ABC's The View was uninterrupted during the last strike back in 2007, which ended in uh, in early 2008. The strike's impact on scripted series will take longer to feel. Even uh, daily soap operas tend to have their scripts completed months in advance. 
uh, movies, we may start noticing uh, an effect on those, but that will take much longer before we do. Production on finished screenplays can proceed as planned, though without the benefit of last-minute rewrites, which happens a lot. That's uh, all assuming, by the way, that those crews whose unions uh, may be coming to various strikes themselves Uh, That's assuming that they are willing to cross picket lines in in order to work. Many viewers and moviegoers may not notice the effects of a strike until long after it is over. A full stop to work will mean major economic losses for screenwriters, though many say it's worth it to fight the day-to-day dwindling of income, which they say they have been trying to work out with producers. Uh, Not just for months, but in fact, a number of years. Here's Danny Strong. He's the creator of the Emmy-nominated series called Dope Sick, which streams on Hulu as he was picketing on New York's Fifth Avenue on Tuesday in front of a building where uh, there was to be a presentation. I don't know if it happened, but there was to be a presentation by NBC's uh, Peacock Streaming Streaming Service. Service. Yes, Uh, and uh, the executives reportedly just walked past them silently. Of course they did. Here's Danny Strong. These issues were issues we should have addressed three years ago, um, but because of the pandemic, the writers graciously agreed to not pursue it. Uh, and in those three years, streaming has only taken up a bigger share of the market, while the other ancillary outlets, distribution outlets, have only gotten smaller and smaller. So the issues uh, blown up into even a bigger, more important one for writers to get a more fair share of, of streaming. So uh, writers have gone on strike six times, uh, apparently more than any other group in Hollywood. And to be clear, we support the writers here. We will miss those late night shows (laughs) tremendously. Yes, but we support the writers and the writers union. The writers are the ones that actually do the work. Well, Rather they all do the, the work. I well, don't want to. Well, no, I would say that the producers, they select okay. the people who do the work, but the writers actually create the content that is making all of this money and they're not getting shares. Fair of enough. That. I was thinking of the directors. Oh, that's true. And the actors. Yes, they do the they work. They also do the work. But they're and also. And the crews. They also have yeah. to fight with the producers in order to get a fair share of go. the profits of yeah. what they created. On the other hand, we could use some extra sleep, so maybe we'll get that. <laughs> In any event, uh, the uh, so they've gone on strike six times. The last time was the uh, that 2007-2008 strike uh, that I mentioned. That was resolved after about three months, so this could go on for a while. I remember that strike. Back in uh, 2007 and 2008, mm-hmm. I remember it well because at the time, shows like The Daily Show and The Colbert Report, they were unable to air because both John Stewart and Stephen Colbert at the time, and I suspect this is true for most of the late night shows, other than Gutfeld, they're they're all the hosts were all actually guild members themselves. So even if they wanted to appear without a script written by the the writing team, they could not even write their own scripts to appear. Now, after that strike had gone on for a while, I'm not sure how many weeks it had gone on, but at some at, at some point. Both John Stewart and Stephen Colbert came back, even during the strike. Uh, I think some of the other hosts did as well, if I'm remembering correctly. And they ended up improving the entire program again because they could not even write their own jokes, which is uh, for themselves to tell because they're guild members. Uh, so we'll see if that's where we end up uh, at some point here. But for now, 
those shows are gone. Uh, and to make things, well, even even worse, I guess, the, uh, the WGA strike may not be the only one. Contracts for both the Directors Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA, the Actors' Union, they both expire in June mm. as well. So uh, some of the same issues around the business modeling of streaming will apparently factor into those bargaining sessions as well. So this could go on for a while. Yes, it could. And just want to point out that the vast majority of these writers, in fact, the vast majority of everybody who works in the TV and movie business, they're all mostly middle class. Just middle-class people trying to do their jobs, trying to pay the mortgage, put the kids in school, that kind of thing. So when people, you mean they're not big fancy Hollywood stars like you and I? <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's, yeah. a, there, for example, um, Alex O'Keefe, who won the Writers Guild Award for Best Comedy for The Bear. Um, he actually reported that at the time that he won that award, his neg- his bank account was negative because he's not making enough to make a living in order to stay in the business. It's as if the producers wish to turn this kind of work into gig work. Yeah. In, uh, well, much more disturbing deadline news today, as uh, uh, troubling as the the Writers Guild is, I think we should all agree this deadline is much more disturbing. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned lawmakers on Monday that the federal government could run short of money to pay its bills as early as June 1. That is less than a month away from now, for those of you keeping score at home. That, unless the debt ceiling is raised soon, as NPR's lead reads. AP uh, describes what does this mean exactly. Well, in a letter notifying notifying Congress, Janet Yellen warned that the U.S. could default on its debt for the first time in U.S. history if legislators fail to raise or suspend the nation's borrowing authority. That would be the dumb, pointless debt ceiling bill uh, law, the debt ceiling limit. Unless they raise it before June 1 uh, to avert what could potentially become a global financial crisis, not just here in the U.S., but globally. And it's really important for... Frankly, for media to uh, take note here, uh, though neither NPR nor AP does in their coverage, such a crisis, if it happens, if it comes about, if the U.S. government runs out of money to spend on things, essentially, for the first time in U.S. history, such a crisis would be completely self-inflicted. It would be completely unnecessary. There is no actual reason for this at all other than it's being completely caused by the Republican Party in Congress who is choosing or threatening, at least, to crash the global economy. It's important to note that because otherwise this becomes a game of, oh, you know, lawmakers, they just can't agree. Or uh, Republicans in Congress and the and President Biden, they, they can't come to terms over this. Why can't they all compromise? Why can't they all work together? A pox on both of their houses. Well, that is not what is going on here. And it's important that people understand this. The debt ceiling has been raised without a problem 
over and over and over again for the better part of decades and decades and decades. It's a dumb law. It shouldn't exist in the first place because all it does is grant authority to the U.S. government to borrow enough money to pay its bills for spending that has already been debated uh, in, in spending and budget negotiations and signed by the president. So this is only about borrowing the money that would be needed to pay for the stuff that we have already bought, that has already been approved by Congress. Now, the debt ceiling was raised to do exactly that by both parties three different times while Donald Trump was in the White House. Republicans only use this dumb quirk in U.S. law, which almost no other civilized countries in the world actually have. They only do that. They only do this when there's a Democrat in the White House. And I'm really hoping the media can make this clear to the American people. And the Republicans right now, with a Democrat in the White House, well, they are now using the opportunity to hold the nation and world economies hostage to demands to dismantle hundreds of billions of dollars in spending that both previous Congresses and previous presidents of all parties have already agreed to. Last week, by the thinnest of possible uh, uh, majorities, margins, Kevin McCarthy was able to strong arm his party in the House into passing a bill to increase the debt limit for less than a year. So we would have to go through all of this, by the way, all over again in less than a year's time in the middle of a presidential election. He, they agreed that they would raise the debt limit for a few months in exchange for cutting hundreds of billions of dollars in programs for things like feeding millions of hungry Americans, taking health care away from millions of the poorest Americans, including veterans, by the way. Not to mention simply canceling the bulk of the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year by Democrats to invest in mitigation and hardening the, the nation against our worsening climate crisis, which Desi Doyen may have a few words about in our latest Green mm -hmm. News report later this hour. But that's what they're, you know, either give us everything we want or the economy gets it. Janet Yellen acknowledged the June 1 date and saying it's subject to change. It could be weeks later than projected. Why don't we just run it up to the wall and find out? But it could be later than uh, than projected because uh, forecasting government cash flows is difficult. However, based on April tax receipts and current spending levels, she predicted the government could run short of cash by early June. Quote, given the current projections, it is imperative that Congress act as soon as possible, she said, to increase or suspend the debt limit in a way that provides long-term certainty that the government will continue to make its payments. That in a letter that Yellen wrote uh, to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy of California. By the way, you know, they can be prevented from paying uh, salaries to the military. They can be prevented from paying Social Security payments to the elderly. All of that happens if they do not raise the debt ceiling in time. Her warning provides the most urgent timetable to date, with Yellen noting, quote, We have learned from past debt limit impasses that waiting until the last minute to suspend or increase the debt limit can cause serious harm 
to business and consumer confident confidence, raising short-term borrowing costs for taxpayers and negatively impacting the credit rating of the United States. Which costs the United States more than in consequence. In yeah. other words, by allowing this to go up to the wire, they're actually increasing the deficit by yep. increasing the ra- interest rate that the U.S. has to pay to pay all this Which back. Which is exac- exactly what they did the last time they pulled this crap, back in 2011. The threat alone to, uh, you know, to potentially default the U.S. government for the first time ever. The threat alone led to the first ever downgrading of the U.S. credit rating for uh, for Treasury bonds back then. It cost us billions of dollars, as Desi notes, uh, even as Republicans were pretending that they were doing all of this in order to somehow save money. Yellen added in her letter to lawmakers, uh, quote, if Congress fails to increase the debt limit, it would cause severe hardship to American families. It will harm our global leadership position and raise questions about our ability to defend our national security interests. One of the largest reasons for the need to increase borrowing, of course, is thanks to the hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue decreases that Republicans and Donald Trump locked in for corporations and the wealthy in their 2017 tax cuts, none of which are rolled back by the proposal that was passed by Republicans in the House last week, slashing all sorts of spending on actual Americans, services to actual Americans. Never once did they say, and you know what, we're going to roll back at least some of those tax cuts, those huge gifts we gave to corporations and the wealthy as they make larger profits than they ever have in history. Also on Monday, the Congressional Budget Office reported that it too saw a greater risk of the U.S. running out of funds in early June. The director of the CBO said because of less than expected tax receipts this filing season and a faster IRS having processed all uh, having processed already received returns, quote, Treasury's extraordinary measures will be exhausted sooner than we previously projected. Well, the irony there being that because the IRS is doing a much better and faster job under Joe Biden, The numbers for this year are actually available sooner rather than later and reveal that we may be in trouble by June 1 instead of the estimate of, I think it was late summer, that the Treasury Department had originally warned about. Nonetheless, for now anyway, House Republicans are continuing to demand deep spending cuts and other policy changes in exchange for raising the debt limit. President Biden has insisted he will not negotiate over the full faith and credit of the federal government, and he is right to do so. If he was willing to negotiate here, then guess what? This would happen every single time, making the the entire federal government unmanageable. If actual budget negotiations mean anything, budget negotiations, not this borrowing limit stuff, but if actual budget negotiations mean, well, if it means nothing... Because everything, you know, every every time that happens, uh, you know, they can simply be thrown out. They can simply be undermined the next time the government needs to borrow money to pay its bills. Well, not only would those budgets ultimately mean absolutely nothing, but it would mean that every, you know, six months or so, the nation and global economy could be held hostage to this sort of nonsense. Not only would this be devastating 
to the U.S., but also to the world economy, which is based in no small part on the excellent faith and credit of the U.S. dollar. That, and that became crystal clear, the, uh, the, the, the notion that it is a terrible idea to negotiate with terrorists. That became crystal clear back in 2011 under President Obama. He did try to negotiate with his bad faith negotiating partners in the Republican Party. And by the way, Obama was a terrible negotiator <laughs> yes. who should have never been entering negotiations at all like this. That attempt back in 2011 cost hundreds of billions of dollars. It was a painful lesson learned for Democrats at the time. Back when, you may recall, Joe Biden was the vice president. He was in the White House. He saw what happened, and hopefully he learned the lesson that negotiating with terrorists, economic or otherwise, is never a good idea. But back then, uh, the Republican Party was a lot less self-destructive than it is now and, in fact, a, a lot less immune to consequences for their action, uh, for their actions than they are now, thanks to even worse gerrymandering now than we had back then. So this is a recipe for disaster. Hopefully, President Biden both you know, understands that, that he, he will not negotiate with terrorists. And by the way, hopefully the White House has plans about what to do without an agreement by Republicans in Congress to raise borrowing authority. Because, you know, while the GOP has threatened this now many times, the current crop of nutballs in the House, they really do not seem to mind blowing everything up knowing that they are safe in their gerrymandered districts and with a right-wing media, frankly, that will not properly explain to its duped Republican viewers and readers who is actually to blame for the crash of the stock market and the loss of millions of American jobs that will ensue if this moves forward as Republicans are now threatening. On Monday, President Biden invited McCarthy to a uh, meeting at the White House on May 9, so next week, with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. According to a uh, White House official, Biden plans to use the meeting to stress the urgency of avoiding a default while discussing a separate process to address government spending. That separate process is known as the, you know, the annual budget process. If they wanted to cut things there, if they wanted to, uh, you know, prevent uh, an agreement from happening. Well, that is of a different magnitude than what these guys are now talking about. The government technically reached its debt limit in January, but Yellen said that she could use emergency measures to buy time and to allow the government to keep paying bills temporarily. Eric Van Nostren, the acting Ass assistant secretary for economic policy, said in a statement that even if Congress raises the debt limit before a default occurs, the ensuing uncertainty could raise borrowing costs and induce other financial stress that would weaken our labor market and our standing in the world. There is no time to waste, said Shai Akabas, director of economic policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. The U.S. government is again within mere months or even weeks of failing to make good on all its obligations. He said 
that is not a position befitting of a country considered the bedrock of the financial system and only adds uncertainty to an already shaky economy. Yellen said last week at a policy conference in Washington, quote, Congress must vote to raise or suspend the debt limit, and it should do so without conditions, and it should not wait until the last minute. I believe that is a basic responsibility of our nation's leaders to get this done, she said. So, of course... Why would Republicans do the responsible thing? And why would uh, the media, right wing or otherwise, actually call out who is causing this? But it's important that you understand it because it's important that the White House know that the American people understand it so they don't lose their resolve to do the right thing here. Anyway, things are likely to get very bumpy. You have been warned. I, I suspect we'll be returning to this topic uh, sooner rather than later. And uh, one more story before we get to a break here. Uh, given the grim news that we've covered so far today, uh, add to that the grim news that we covered on yesterday's broadcast. You can download it at bradblog.com if you missed that grim news. Uh, it seems some brighter news might be welcome here. Yesterday on the program, for example, we covered the possibility of the stolen, packed, and wildly corrupted right-wing U.S. Supreme Court majority invoking the so-called independent state legislature theory, allowing Republican state legislatures around the country to undermine decades, even centuries of election laws. We also discussed the announcement by the Supreme Court that they'll be hearing a uh, case next term that will likely be used to undermine the so-called Chevron doctrine, which gives deference to experts at federal agencies when it comes to regulations that Congress are not very specific about, with the uh, Supreme Court likely to take away that deference to those experts in their field and allow instead corrupt federal judges without expertise at all to undermine such regulations. More on that foreboding news shortly also in our Green News Report today. Yes. But some slightly brighter news. We could even describe this as good news, maybe, about some right-wing state legislatures who may finally be getting the message. Maybe. At least when it comes to reproductive freedoms, at least in two states. The failure of strict new abortion laws to advance in two different Republican-dominated legislatures on the same day last week signals a mounting fear among some Republicans that abortion bans could lead to political backlash. Do you think? A near-total ban on abortion failed last Thursday in South Carolina, just hours before a six-week ban fizzled in Nebraska, according to the Washington Post. Abortion, therefore remains legal for now in both states until 22 weeks of pregnancy. Again, at least for now. In lengthy and often impassioned speeches on the South Carolina Senate floor, the state's five female senators, there's just five of them, three of them are Republicans, two of them are Democrats, but in lengthy speeches, all five of them decried what would have been a near-total ban on abortion in the state. One of them, Senator Sandy Sen, a Republican, likened the implications to the dystopian novel The Handmaid's Tale. 
in which women are treated as property of the state. Now, of course, you've heard Democrats do that in the past and supporters of abortion rights, but this was a Republican state senator doing this in South Carolina, comparing this nightmare to The Handmaid's Tale. Thank you, Senator. Abortion laws, she said, quote, have always been, each and every one of them, about control. Plain and simple, she said, and in the Senate, the males have all the control. Again, thank you, Senator. Well, it was uh, women who helped defeat the measure in South Carolina. In Nebraska, it was a different story. It was an 80-year-old man who stalled that uh, uh, scheme for a six-week ban. Senator Merv Reap, I think that's how you say his name, Reap or Ripe, we'll go with Reap, Uh, a longtime Republican, 80 years old. He would have been the decisive vote to advance the bill to a final round uh, to institute a six-week ban. He abstained from the vote over his concern that the six-week ban may not give women enough time to know that they are pregnant. And thank you, Senator, for that. He's actually... uh, Uh, you know, been an anti-abortion guy uh, in the past. But he did the right thing here. Reap told the Flatwater Free Press that he was concerned the Nebraska bill would be viewed as a total ban. Quote, at the end of the day, I need to look back and be able to say to myself, did you do the best? He told the paper. No group came to me asking me to do this. This is my own beliefs, my own commitments, he said. Thursday's events last week caught the attention of national advocates on both sides of the issue who have been tracking the fast-changing abortion landscape since Roe v. Wade was overturned last June. Right-wingers, and I won't call them conservatives because they're not, they're not uh, using big government to intercede between a woman and her doctor is decidedly not conservative. Anyway, right-wingers have pushed GOP leaders to seize the opportunity, the uh, overturning of Roe, to uh, enact strict bans all across the country. But voters across the country have repeatedly demonstrated their strong support for abortion rights, which are wildly popular. Therefore, they have struck down anti-abortion amendments when given the option, even in right-wing states like Kentucky and Kansas. Ianthi Metzger, the director of the state advocacy communicate uh, of state advocacy communications at Planned Parenthood, said this really shows that even in red states, winning is still possible. We do know that banning abortion is unpopular. During a particularly heated debate in uh, in South Carolina on this, some Republican lawmakers opposed to the near total ban said that abortion foes had sent them plastic spines and notes urging the recipients to, quote, grow a spine. (laughs) That only seemed to strengthen the resolve of the uh, female legislators in South Carolina. South Carolina State Senator Katrina Sheely, a Republican, blasted the plastic spines as, quote, the worst example of lobbying she had ever seen, according to the Post and Courier. The uh, other female senators in uh, South Carolina also echoed those sentiments and the concerns about their lack of representation in the halls of power in South Carolina and elsewhere. Quote, the total ban that's being debated here today, said Democratic South Carolina State Senator Mia McLeod, clearly places the rights of 
a fetus over the rights of the women and girls who will be forced by our male-dominated legislature to carry that fetus to term. To be blunt, the majority has no frame of reference. There's only five of us in this body who have actually given birth. Vicki Ringer, director of public affairs for Planned Parenthood South Atlantic, said the bill's failure there was a temporary reprieve. The six-week ban is still looming. In um, Lincoln, Nebraska, where lawmakers are technically nonpartisan but generally have a party affiliation, uh, so-called conservatives said that all options will be under discussion in the future. So we are not out of the woods yet, not by a long shot. But maybe, just maybe, there is beginning to be a recognition by some, at least some who have yet to be run out of the Republican Party, that taking away freedoms from Americans when vast majorities support abortion rights, well, that is something that Republicans should not actually be doing, even in Nebraska, even in South Carolina. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll come back with, uh, well, I don't know if we'll call it good news, but um, encouraging news for those of us who still eagerly await accountability for our criminal former president. Still more evidence that he knew loudly and clearly that he was lying about the 2020 election being stolen. More evidence in the bargain that he and his campaign appear to have defrauded his own supporters out of more than a quarter of a billion dollars. That's next on the broadcast. And yes, Green News Report is still ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Desi. The broadcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. But, you know, dirty little secrets have a way of coming out eventually, don't they? (laughs) Yes, they do. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A few weeks ago, on actually it was a few months ago on this program, back in February, I believe, mid-February, we covered a report from Washington Post's Josh Dossie finding that a firm that was hired by the Trump campaign back in 2020, right after the election, to investigate any and all evidence of fraud in that year's presidential election. Well, they were they were able to find absolutely nothing that could have affected the results of the election in any state in the union. As we noted at the time, the campaign had paid researchers from a company named Berkeley Research Group uh, to study the 2020 election results in six critical states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Nevada, looking for fraud and irregularities high and low to highlight in public and in the courts. And among the areas examined, for example, were voter machine uh, uh, machine malfunctions, instances of dead people voting, and 
any evidence that could somehow help Trump show that he won, according to these people. None of the findings were presented to the public or in court. Why? Well, because none of them had it showed any evidence of fraud whatsoever after about a dozen people at the firm were paid some six hundred thousand dollars to work on this report. I would have shown them no evidence of fraud for half that price. <laughs> I'm just saying. And the people who worked on it included, for example, econometricians. They, these are people who use statistics in order to model and predict outcomes. And yet they still could not find any reason to believe that the 2020 election was stolen. On that, any of the many, many factors that they investigated. Correct. None of them. And this was, as Trump, at the same time, they had given this information to Trump. We never learned about it. And even though he knew about it, he was still falsely asserting that 2020 was stolen in the weeks that were leading up to the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. An insurrection, an attack that occurred just after he had claimed to the crowd that there were these, you know, that the election was stolen, despite abundant evidence to the contrary that he and his campaign already had by that time. That all of those claims were false. He went out and made them anyway. Uh, quote, this is from Dossie's uh, report. Uh, they looked at everything. Change of addresses, illegal immigrants, ballot harvesting, people voting twice, machines being tampered with, ballots that were sent to vacant addresses that were returned and voted, said a person who was familiar with the work. This was this is the crap that Republicans have been claiming for years. And now somebody was willing to pay a whole bunch of money, six hundred thousand dollars to this group to find exactly that. Literally anything that you could think of, the source said, voter turnout anomalies, date of birth anomalies, whether dead people voted. If there was anything under the sun that could be thought of, they looked at it, according to this uh, source. Senior officials from Berkeley Research Group had briefed Trump on these uh, findings, along with then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and others in a uh, December 2020 conference call. So they knew about it. Trump knew about it. Trump knew about it well before he then went out on January 6th and made claims that were the exact opposite of what this group had told them after uh, told him after looking at all of these various things. And all of which, the, you know, thanks to the reporting on this, all of which is no doubt very critical now to special counsel Jack Smith's own ongoing investigation into Trump's various attempts to steal the 2020 election and Trump's intent in falsely and fraudulently claiming that the election was stolen. So that was back in February. And now we have this today from the same Josh Dossie at Washington Post. Former President Trump's campaign quietly commissioned a second firm to study election fraud claims in the weeks after the 2020 election. And the founder of the firm was recently questioned by the Justice Department about his work disproving those claims. Ken Block, the founder of the firm Simpatico Software Systems, studied more than a dozen voter fraud theories and allegations for Trump's campaign in late 2020 and found that they were, quote, all false. 
That, according to an interview that he did with The Washington Post, quote, no substantive voter fraud was uncovered in my investigations looking for it, nor was I able to confirm any of the outside claims of voter fraud that I was asked to look at. He said every fraud claim I was asked to investigate was false, unquote. Could he be more clear? Block said that he uh, recently received a subpoena from special counsel Jack Smith's office and met with federal prosecutors in Washington. He declined to discuss his interactions with them. He said he contemporaneously sent his findings disputing fraud claims in writing to the Trump campaign in late 2020. Again, that would be prior to January 6th. Prosecutors have obtained extensive information about Block's efforts, according to people with knowledge of the matter who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Federal records show the Trump 2020 campaign paid Block's firm more than $750,000. So I think that's, uh, boy, that's a lot of money is what that <laughs> is, about a million and a quarter overall that were paid to two different groups to find zero fraud in the 2020 election. Separately, prosecutors have also interviewed multiple employees from the Berkeley Research Group in recent weeks. That's the other Trump-paid firm. They produced a 29-page report ultimately undermining Trump's fraud claims. The prosecutors have obtained records from the firm and its employees through subpoenas, according to two people who work at Berkeley. Firm employees have told the Justice Department that former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and other top administration officials and campaign officials were all aware of the hmm. Berkeley research and the findings. Of course they were, because it wasn't actually ever about the truth. Prosecutors reportedly trying to show that Trump and his adverti advertisers, his advisors, <laughs> definitely definitely knew or had good reason to believe that their myriad fraud claims were false as they continued to spread and raise funds off the claims. And that's why this is, well, there's a lot of reasons why this is important. But, uh, you know, and I know that none of this is surprising, at least, you know, those of you who have been following this program since, oh, I don't know, hours after the election last. No, not last. Two years. How many years ago? More than two years ago <laughs> yeah. at this point. I know we've been repeating them over and over, but they are still important. And the more evidence uh, of, of Trump just blatantly lying and not just lying, but knowing that he was lying, the more evidence we have of that, the more likely this man is to be in very, very big trouble. So they knew about it. His team knew about it. His advisors at the White House knew about it. His campaign knew about it. His top DOJ staff was telling him the exact same thing. And yet he kept repeating those claims, uh, suggesting, you know, that... Yes, it was absolutely fraudulent what happened in the 2020 election, even while he was raising hundreds of millions of dollars fraudulently on the claim that there was fraud. The Trump campaign after the election knew that their claims about election fraud were false, and yet they still kept making them and raising money off of them. That is likely to be very key in any federal indictment by Jack Smith 
regarding January 6th and, and everything related to it. The false claims ultimately, according to the Post, convinced some voters that the election was stolen and it inspired rioters to storm the Capitol on January 6th and it raised more than $250 million. That's a quarter of a billion dollars. So, you know, the, the studies of the fraud, that was, you know, a, a million something. They made more than $250 million, a quarter of a billion dollars for Trump and his allies by continuing to tell the lie that they knew was a lie. Key to building any such case uh, by Smith, according to experts, is proving that Trump and other advisors making the claims publicly did not actually believe them or that they had evidence to know that they were false. Yeah, it speaks to intent, and you got to prove the intent on this, and it looks like they're going to be able to. I don't to. know how you could not uh, have clear intent at this point. Uh, by the way, since the election, uh, this guy Block, Ken Block, has tweeted extensively about how many of the election fraud claims were false. He wrote just last week, quote, Attention election conspiracy theorists. Fox News just coughed up more than $750 million to settle the defamation lawsuit brought by Dominion Voting Systems. Yet another 2020 false fraud claim put to rest. Anyway, that guy, uh, well, Trump, not Block, that guy, Trump, he's in big trouble which I think we will uh, be discussing again on tomorrow's show Hopefully. as we uh, get caught up with all of Trump's pending indictments with Marcy Wheeler of EmptyWheel.net. I think she's here tomorrow uh, as we uh, try to catch up with her from time to time on, uh, well, a whole lot of trouble that Donald Trump is still in. All right, let's take quick, another quick break here. And Desi Doyen joins us for our latest Green News report right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, Donald Trump is in trouble for, and you know he's in a lot of trouble when he's actually on trial for rape and defamation, and I think we've mentioned it maybe once or twice on this show. Because there's so much else also So that much he's going in on, for. yeah. Uh, on uh, day five of the trial, New York Times is reporting a friend testified that E. Jean Carroll, uh, the columnist who claims that she was raped by uh, Trump back in the 90s in a department store, um, the friend testified that she, uh, E. Jean Carroll, called her minutes after she said she was raped by Donald Trump back in the mid-1990s. Apparently that trial is not going well for Donald Trump. Not that he necessarily knows about it because he's too cowardly to even show up. Yep. I'm starting to wonder if maybe he's lying about uh, not knowing that woman. All right, uh, let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. Conservative estimate is that such droughts have become about a hundred times more likely. Drought in East Africa was caused by climate change, study finds. U.S. Supreme Court to hear case challenging federal authority to regulate pollution. 
Plus, uh, that Starship rocket did fail to reach orbit. It looks like it blew up over Texas. SpaceX grounded in Texas after rocket failure damages wildlife preserves. All of those unscheduled failures and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. People are not affecting climate change. You're going to tell me that back in the Ice Age, how much taxes did people pay and how many changes did governments make to melt the ice? Climate scientist Marjorie Taylor Greene. No, don't ask me to explain it either. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen. Oh, climate change was responsible for the terrible, deadly drought in Africa? Yes, apparently it was. It has led to the deaths of millions of cattle and decimated crops. But scientists say it could not have occurred without global warming. That's according to a new scientific analysis by the scientists at the World Weather Attribution Group, which found that the sixth failed rainy season in a row in East Africa would not have happened if not for human-caused global heating, which significantly increased increased evaporation, the hotter, drier air literally sucking the moisture from soil and plants. The analysis found that human-caused climate change has made drought in the region 100 times more likely than in pre-industrial times. The United Nations warns 36 million people in the region will need emergency assistance to survive. But it's nothing that we have to worry about in this country. It won't affect us at all, right? I wish that were true. Here in the U.S., an ominous development, the U.S. Supreme Court will take up a case next year that could strip federal agencies' authority to regulate. It's a long-sought goal of Republicans in big business. The lawsuit in question regards who pays the salaries of federal inspectors on commercial fishing vessels. But the lawsuit's primary purpose is as a vehicle for the right-wing supermajority on the court to take down the decades-long long precedent known as the Chevron Doctrine. That's a 1984 Supreme Court ruling that requires courts to defer to agency expertise when deciding how to interpret laws passed by Congress, and judges should refrain from crafting their own readings. Overturning Chevron could have major implications for the Biden administration's ability to tackle climate change, including possibly derailing the Environmental Protection Agency's current push to curb climate warming carbon emissions from electricity electricity generation and transportation, the nation's two highest polluting industries. Let me be clear about this case. This is about allowing judges who have no skills, no expertise in these things to make decisions about federal regulations rather than leaving that to the experts at the federal agencies. This is what Steve Bannon has been promising for years, an attempt to dismantle the administrative state as he calls it. In other news, environmental groups sued the Federal Aviation Administration on Monday, alleging the agency violated federal law in allowing SpaceX to launch a massive rocket from its coastal Texas launch facility without a comprehensive environmental impact study. The rocket failed catastrophically, blowing up the launch pad and spreading massive clouds of debris for miles, damaging nearby homes and a handful of protected wildlife refuges and endangered species habitats, incinerating wildlife unable to move fast enough out of danger. Mm. The FAA has grounded SpaceX from further launches in Texas pending an investigation. Good. 
U.S. Senate Republicans, joined by conservative Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, voted 50 to 49 late last week to overturn a Biden administration rule intended to cut air pollution from big heavy-duty trucks. Not good. Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California did not vote, having been absent from the Senate for months due to illness. The EPA calculates that the new truck standards would have prevented thousands of premature deaths from toxic diesel pollution. Dianne Feinstein needs to resign. Right now, she is handing a majority to Republicans in the Democratic majority U.S. Senate. Finally, some good news. The California Air Resources Board adopted two first-of-their-kind rules to curb air pollution. The first covers trains, mandating that rail companies operating in the state replace old diesel-powered locomotive trains that the agency calculates will prevent more than 3,200 premature deaths, especially in neighborhoods adjacent to rail and highway traffic. The second rule bans the sale of new heavy-duty diesel trucks in the state by 2036. If approved by the EPA, the new rule will also require all heavy trucks in the state to be zero emissions by 2042. It's intended to mitigate California's notorious toxic air pollution and help the state transition more quickly to zero emission vehicles. I'll take it. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. He's pounded down, loaded up and trucking. Are we going to do what they say can be done? Uh-huh. We've got a long way to go and a short time. I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you how much I love that song. I don't know why, but I absolutely love it. It makes me happy every time it plays. Yes, and of course, it's also true that we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. So California is helping with that. There you go. Watch old Bandit run. We got to get out. Uh, my thanks to our producer Desi Doyen. My thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program. You can always download it for free at bradblog.com along with every show we have ever done. No paywall. That is made possible by those of you kind enough to support our work with the donation at bradblog.com slash donate. Couldn't do it without you. All right. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, I am the Brad Blog. See you there until we see you here. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. He's pounded down, loaded up and trucking. Are we gonna do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm he's pounded up. Watch on, man.